You're listening to The Gold Standard, Episode 27, Nare Sol, Reinventing the Classical, Part 1. Everybody, I'm Brian Levine, and welcome to the Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. Once again, we're here to bring you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. If music, film, books, dance, poetry, visual art, theater, novels, or design are the bubbles in the Veuve Clicquot of your life, you have come to the right place, my friends. But first, while you're stopping by under our hypnotically glowing neon piano sign, please do take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe. You'll get uh, advance word about new episodes before they come down the track. And if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, please kindly leave your reviews, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. And to get more sparkling sounds, witty words, and intriguing images, we'd love it if you'd pay us a visit at our website, glengould.ca. While you're there, you will notice a very prominent donate button. We are, in fact, a Canadian registered charity, and we would be so grateful if you would support us in our work. Now, I'm joined today by a wonderful musician and composer, an artist, and above all, communicator. And if you don't know her work already, I predict that you'll be a fan by the time we're finished today. Now, for those of us who have spent our lives in and around the world of so-called classical music, One of the most tiresomely persistent questions is whether this music is a dying art. As a matter of fact, people have been asking that question since long before Chuck Berry told Beethoven to roll over. But setting aside the challenges that all the performing arts face from the COVID pandemic, I think it's safe to say the classical music isn't going anywhere in a hurry, and there are hundreds of millions of people who listen to it and enjoy it every day, and plenty more who compose and perform it. According to the IFPI, The recorded music industry generated revenues of $21.6 billion in 2021, and I've seen estimates that classical music is about 2.5% of that. Now, that may seem like a tiny number to you until you do the math and learn that that's $540 million just from the recordings. That's a larger percentage, incidentally, than world music, reggae, new age, Latin, EDM, and roughly the same size as jazz. Besides, when you come down to it, what do people even mean by classical music anyway? It's music that covers a span of a thousand years, from the Middle Ages to today, dozens of countries, and a vast array of nationalities, ethno-racial and religious heritages, and political and economic environments. But the fact does remain that classical music does face some serious challenges. Institutionally, despite the positive attempts that uh, some have been making to loosen its starched cravat and tailcoat, it remains a pretty conservative realm. In North America, at least, its audience is trending older, which apparently is considered something quite shameful, and it's largely non-commercial, so nobody is pouring gazillions of dollars into promoting it. When was the last time you saw a classical musician on E! or in People magazine? It isn't taught in public schools anymore, 
and it isn't presented on TV. When it does appear on film scores, it's often associated with supervillains and serial killers. And it's recently become a trendy punching bag for a particular sort of uh, academic social critique, as if there was something inherently social or political or any kind of similar structure built into what is, let's face it, just an organized series of different pitches arranged in an emotionally pleasing way. So classical music does have its challenges. Challenges of visibility and perception with a mass audience, lack of market clout, branding, and audience attrition, and also a perceived failure to keep up with the times. And this creates challenges for musicians and composers. One of the greatest of these challenges is how to build a career, carve out a niche, and respond to numerous other musical styles and influences that make up our cultural ecosystem, and in so doing, captivate new audiences. And that's where our guest today, Nare Sol, really strides inspiringly onto the stage as a brilliant example for the future. She was educated at Juilliard and in Paris, took part in master classes in Leipzig, and then came to Toronto where she earned an artist diploma from the Glenn Gould School at the Royal Conservatory of Music. Early on, she decided that a traditional career as a concert pianist wasn't her destined path, and she has distinguished herself instead as a composer of music that draws on an eclectic array of classical, jazz, and popular influences. More to the point, Nare Sol has developed a powerful presence as a YouTuber. From her start in 2017 to today, she's built a large and loyal following, and she's traversed a huge range of musical subjects from how to sound like Beethoven to how to write pop music. Her videos are smart, witty, engaging, substantive, and really meaty. Sorry, vegans. Uh, And a whole range of subjects are presented in a way that is just simply fun. It didn't take me long to get hooked, and I'm sure when you investigate her YouTube channel, it won't take you long either. Nare, welcome to the Gould Standard. Thank you, Brian, for having me. I'm excited to talk about some very interesting topics with you. And thank you for the intro. That's very elaborate and, and flattering. Thank you. Well, I went on at greater than usual length because I really wanted to put what you've achieved in a context. And while a lot of us who have been working in and around classical music for a long time keep wondering, you know, what's the future and how can really interesting new creative careers be built, you've actually gone and done it. So can you tell me a little bit about your own journey? What led you from uh, a very elite classical piano education to your discovery of an entirely new way to express yourself musically via YouTube? Well, I I went across many different schools following the traditional, quote-unquote, traditional path. I started off in different conservatories, studying piano performance, and I always thought that I would become a concert pianist. And I was very comfortable following the guidelines that my mentors and teachers reiterated to me and the path that I saw a lot of my colleagues take doing auditions, competitions, but pretty much nearing my, at the end of my bachelor's studies at Juilliard, I started to feel a sense of fatigue combined with just this overwhelming uncertainty of what's to come because I started to, to really look around, not just focus on the repertoire and my tasks for that month, but just to wonder, okay, what am I supposed to do after? And I really had no answers. And the best I could do at that point was to just try to hone in on what is it that excites me about music enough that despite these looming challenges, 
both circumstantially, logistically, financially associated with this career, I am very adamant about continuing my path as a musician. And I started to narrow it down to a few things that honestly were a little farther away from the stage than I had previously thought. A lot of this included composition. I love music history. I love analyzing music. I was starting to get more into music theory and yet I didn't know how to organize this or really make sense of it because all I knew at that point was, okay, you practice these pieces and you perfect them for the stage and you focus on the repertoire and, and inter interpretation. So the first thing I did was just explore different avenues and I, I started to study a little more composition abroad. I also just on my own, in my own very disorganized way, document what I was doing. Because I think being a millennial and just being familiar with things like YouTube and the internet, I already had a culture built into me and that I was familiar with and comfortable plugging into of sharing videos, whether it's, hey, you know, to my friends, I just went to this concert you know, here's some pictures, here's a video footage. I just took that into the practice room and also just some things that were going on in my head of analyzing this material. And I lumped it together and I started posting it. And this was around 2017. And that just, you know, long story short, <laughs> a lot of, there are a lot of different details in there, but long story short, that started to become a thing that I recognized as having a space in the vast, vast field of um, music on the internet. And what's interesting is that you're, you're able to find your own audience based on your very unique sets of interests and what, what combines together when you make something original. And I just started to see a little bit of momentum in terms of an audience and also communication. I found an audience that I never thought I would have. And actually, I was told that I would never have because I, um, actually in school, a lot of my teachers would say, you know, you're not focused enough. You need to focus on one thing and you need to really have discipline in that. And so I, I always thought that I needed to shape more of that into a disciplined figure in order to have an audience. But there was an audience that was interested in someone making their own music, performing talking about technique one day, music history another day, and that's that's how I'm doing what I'm doing today. Right. And you've actually spoken a little bit about both the good things of your time in the formal academic world, specifically, I think, your Juilliard experience, where they had rigor and they had intensity and they had you know, a very collegial environment, which is great because, you know, you sometimes hear about a very competitive environment, and, and it sounds like that wasn't your experience, but also that there are certain things that are really part of the practical reality of a musician that they don't really cover very much. They help you to become a fine musician, but they don't really give you much insight in terms of building a career, other than maybe go sign up for a lot of competitions, and then if you win, you'll have a, a career, which I think is less and less true nowadays than it used to be. So in a way, that gap was one that you found your own answer to. But is it something that you think conservatories should spend more time on? And really, do they 
understand the challenges enough themselves? That's a very important question. And I've talked about it recently to the public through my videos. And it's a complicated subject. So I have mixed opinions about it. Of course, my main stance is that, yes, conservatories should, and I wish they can spend a little more time and energy focusing on that career aspect of things. Because even though it's not at the core of why we're doing music and what music is all about, it's so relevant to a musician's experience and a musician's ability to actually be a musician in the real world. How is that going to work out if, if you are an incredible musician, but there's no way to sustain that for yourself and there's no way for you to plug into any kind of system to keep it going. So yes, I understand that, let's say two to four years, even six years at a music conservatory, the immense amount of information and skill and experience that that a musician needs to just scrape the surface of mastering your instrument is too much to fit into that time period. And the primary focus should be on the craft. But I think just a portion of it could be what a musician will go through immediately after school and even during school, because just because they are in conservatory, I always felt that the, the schools sort of assume that you have things set up and there's a, a tremendous amount of background struggle that I've experienced and I've seen my friends experience while in school that it, it's hard to bring into the picture because you're already overwhelmed with the amount of work that you need to do for school and for your instrument. And so that combined with the stress of actually just trying to learn how to play difficult music, very complex music and dealing with the pressures of the stage that's a recipe for a lot of mental strain, a lot of confusion, and a lot of problems that I think are solvable if there, there's just more support and more normalization of, of these topics being talked about. Specifically, I've shared um, that something, some areas that I think are worth expanding in the, the conservatory bubble is how to adapt with the moving landscape of social media and how marketing works, how technology plugs into being a musician, all of these things are, are very relevant and they're very important for your career in the practical sense. Even things like trying to set up for a remote session, whether it's recording for someone, doing a podcast or performing even remotely nowadays, it requires a lot of minute details and skills and, and attention to how to plug certain things into where and put microphones where that I think could just use a little more um, time in the curriculum because it, it does not require a whole semester's course, but just sort of a, a life skills, <laughs> practical yep. skills for musicians. And to be fair, there are many conservatories, many music schools out there that I have observed and I've heard that they have classes that do cover this. I just think that there can be a little more because despite the efforts, I do get hundreds of messages and I also ask around and this was my experience as well. Just a, an outcry of, you know, hey, I don't think this is enough. I'm confused. I'm depressed. I'm scared. I don't think I can actually be a musician despite having gone through 
years of music school training. And I think that's a problem. It's a, it's a terrible problem. And actually, it's gotten much more elaborate than this. But back in the day, in my record business days, my partner and I had many conversations about how young musicians would come out of conservatory and have no instruction on how to make a record. You'd think something so basic. You give concerts, you make records, you do interviews, and you promote yourself. And of course, you learn repertoire and you practice. That's a large part of the musician's life. And that one really key element, and of course, recordings used to be, especially if you could get on a label, uh, a more central piece of, of what it took to, to get ahead. And they had never you know, been through the experience of doing multiple takes, doing inserts, working on getting the sound. And you still, to this day, of course, see a lot of young musicians in conservatory. And what they have to show the outside world of their work is a friend with a phone sitting in the 28th row when they're doing their senior recital. Right. And the sound is awful. The image is awful. The camera is moving. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. So, I mean, these are things that aren't that hard. And compared to the cost of their of their conservatory tuition, the equipment that they need is dead cheap, certainly a lot cheaper than right. when I was in the music business. So why not help the students make that that transition? Because right. they're going to go out into the world one day and we don't want them to all end up as cab drivers. Right. I just think that there's, uh, when I observe even online, um, seeing so many different videos and things that people are posting, there's a big gap between what you just described, you know, the friend at the, the senior recital with the phone <laughs> capturing your performance versus the highly professional symphony orchestra with the soloist, the fanciest equipment, everything very, very formal. And I'd like to just see a little more of that middle ground. And not to say that that doesn't exist. There are so many right. budding musicians that are becoming hip to the times and they're very good at utilizing all the resources available to them. But compared to maybe some other genres and other cultures of music, I do notice that middle area is yet to um, have uh, a bigger presence on the internet. And I think it's because a lot of up and coming classical musicians, they're very busy trying to figure out all that is music and, and trying right. to really focus on that for good reason. And that's that's what they should be doing. But there's a cruel reality to how fast paced and how different the attention span of, of today's audience is and is becoming more and more so because of also the age difference and the, the transformation of who the audience members will be in the next 10 to 20 years. and what cultures they're coming from. So it's tough. <laughs> and yeah. I'm definitely a part of it. I see it. I'm on, I think I'm on the older spectrum of that just because I uh, went to school just before social media and all of that really took off. Right. But the fact is that classical musicians, they don't need to compete with commercial musicians, but there's an element where they're, they're still um, joining the same stage. There there are overlaps. And that's where it becomes tricky. Right. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is really actually very encouraging and hopeful is the hard lines that used to exist in the past between people's musical tastes as listeners 
are somewhat breaking down. And we can maybe consider the streaming environment as part of what's helped that along. You know, if you hear it and you like it, who cares whether it was written two weeks ago is like some heavily multi-track pop song from LA or Nashville, or if it was written 350 uh, years ago. No one cares as long as they like it. Absolutely. Yeah. And also these days, I think platforms like Spotify, do you use Spotify? Uh, yeah, sure. Or other streaming services. I think they're, again, I'll, I'll use the word this word a lot. They're tricky <laughs> because while they open up so many, many ear doors <laughs> to, to people to find different types of classical artists, classical musicians, because there's so much available on there. It invites this passive listening culture that I think um, leaves little room for people to just stop and and pay attention to what they're listening to. I noticed this for myself as well, not just with classical music, but any playlist or any stream of music that I'm listening to, I tend to turn it on. And because it's not curated like a radio program where there are pauses let's say every four or five pieces, the host will let you know what you were just listening to, maybe a little bit about it. There's yep. none of that. It just keeps going. And I just noticed that there's a lot of music that I listen to that I actually don't know who wrote it and who the artist behind it is, but I am very familiar with the music. And I'm not sure if this is a common uh, experience for a lot of people, but I'm actually... Rather new to Spotify, I only started using it about two years ago. And it's something that I just observed. And, and I think right. it's harder for classical musicians because there's another element of credit because it's not just the original composer playing the music or the producer. You could hear the same piece played by hundreds of different instrumentalists, artists, and how many times will you actually stop and check out, oh, who, which pianist is playing this, this piece? I just find that a little, uh, it's just an observation that I made recently. Yeah. Well, it, it's true. And you, you don't uh, get anything without giving something up. So the world of streaming basically is great for what I'd call very broad browsing, but not very good for depth. It's also interesting that you decided pretty early on, before you actually started you know, going out and trying to find managers and doing a lot of competitions, that you wanted to explore a different area. How hard was it to decide composing would be a, a big part of your, of your future life? It wasn't a hard decision as much as it was confusing to, to land on because I was constantly pulled a different direction. And I think at the end of the day, I, I always knew. I just kept questioning um, what I was doing because I was pretty much on my own with that transition. Mm -hmm. um, circumstantially, I had some people around me, uh, close teachers at the time, that were very not supportive of that. I'll put it that way. Ah. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Yes. Um, and uh, to, to be fair, on the flip side, I had um, teachers and, and mentor figures that were the opposite and were very encouraging of me. But at that age, 
in my early 20s, mid 20s. It's hard to not seek the approval of those that you've looked up to for advice for many, many years. So it's really hard to break that relationship and also make that shift. Right. And in some ways, the, the fact that some teachers were not supportive of me and I had a hard time about that, it made it easier for me to shift over and, and just say, you know, I actually do need to find people that are more supportive of my interests and what I'm going for. And throughout all of this, I do understand that it is very tricky because it is not a piano teacher's responsibility to help you find a different path that's not right, piano. Right, right, right. So so that, that right. was a bit tricky. Transitioning from piano performance to more composition is also a bit different because I, I was used to a different process of finding work of presenting myself as a, a performer, as a musician, as a, as a pianist, and sharing different performances that I've done, different recordings. How do you actually do that for composition before you get a commission? So there's a bit of a catch-22. Right. And I think YouTube helped a lot in that sense because I was just able to open up, hey, you know, I'm spending the next few months exploring this concept and th these elements and these cultures, and I'm going to incorporate them into my compositions, things like that. But it was not the, the, the smoothest transition. Well, I, in a way, I think that you may have accidentally done yourself a big favor in terms of finding your voice as a composer to not have that much institutional guidance, because I think there is still to this day, a little bit of a tendency in the academic compositional world to direct people in a certain, let's say, post-dodecaphonic kind yes. of direction. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and what I think is really wonderful and refreshing about your music is how many different influences musically you've absorbed, not only composers of the past who, you know, you've spoken about your love of them. Like, I mean, I hear little resonances of Eric Satie in some of your pieces. but also uh, non-classical. And I've always felt that it was really, really valid to draw upon non-classical music in a classical context, just the way in the 19th century with the, the rise of nationalism, um, composers drew upon folk music. It is part of the musical ecosystem that we're all part of, and it's simply a way of treating it as kind of the raw materials to, to have a different kind of expression. Definitely. And that's why I love to take influence from of so many different sources. And there's always something new to find in things that you've, that are old, just because you yourself have not discovered them. And there are new ways to incorporate them into the music. And right. part of the current contemporary classical music culture, I think, still relies on putting a, a ton of importance on something being novel. Like we've never heard this before. And this is, it's never been as complex as this. And while that pushes many elements of music forward, I think it's not the end all be all of, of what makes new music worthy of, of listening to and all that. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's really interesting. There, there used to be 
way back in the 1950s, a classical radio commentator who just called himself Decoven. And I've heard some recordings of him, and he would basically go on at great length about how he considered what he called the Barococo, Baroque and Rococo uh, period, to be the sort of supreme pinnacle of Western classical music because it focused on excellence of craft rather than novelty of expression. Mm. And uh, I would not fully endorse that because clearly if music is going to change rather than always stay in the same place, you do need novelty. But at a certain point where you see in the 20th century, for example, you know, some really wonderful composers who wrote beautiful and expressive music, but they weren't necessarily on the you know, 12-tone or aleatoric or whatever trend the academic co- compositional world was embracing at that moment, you know, they would be dismissed. You know, let's say, you know, a relatively conservative composer like the American Howard Hansen, who wrote many symphonies and a lot of beautiful work. No one really took him that seriously. And, and lots and lots of other composers beside found themselves in that sort of off-the-mainstream Path, the Schoenbergs and the Boulezes and the, you know, Stockhausens, and they were sort of the academically approved. And I think that's breaking down now because to a certain extent, being academically approved is kind of like saying, oh, so you don't have an audience. <laughs> the thing that I was um, thinking about just now as you were saying that is is how composers like Percy Granger yes. um, are, are perceived before you even really get to know the the extent of his output um a certain way just because the the academic that um institutionalized side of things uh, related to his compositional approach is is not as strong as as other fields just to just to be conservative of of not you know overstating anything here <laughs> Right, exactly. And, and in fact, you know, to be fair, while a lot of institutional energy was saying what is and isn't the approved future of music direction, millions and millions of listeners were still embracing Vaughn Williams and Sibelius and, you know, composers who really were much more firmly rooted in tradition and yet found a, a way of, of um, exploring an authentic personal voice. Mm-hmm. And of course, Schoenberg himself once said, there's still a lot of great music to be written in C major. So, Any and all systems work, whether they're tried and tested and extremely traditional and conservative, or they've never been used before and no one has seen this and it's highly intellectually complex. They will all work if it's driven by something very human. And I think ultimately when you're experiencing it as a human being, we'll be drawn to so many different types of music, but there's, there's something that will plug into some portion of the, the human experience, the, the range of emotions that we're capable of identifying and, and feeling. But when it, it becomes a matter of principle, we're going to write and present music in this way because it's meant to be designed as such to conform to very uh, intellectual and, and institutionalized standards. That can exist. There's an audience for that. You know, there's an audience for everything. But it, there's a ceiling to that, in my opinion. 
Right. Well, I would say the this is the only way mindset is definitely a dead end, even if some of the music that is created by people who may have it may be actually very interesting and very good. I like your system, which I think I would describe as the sponge system where you absorb <laughs> just about everything and then find a way of filtering it through your own creativity to, to achieve your personal voice. And, and I have to say, well, we'll get into a, a little bit of about some of your specific pieces and also your first album. Let's turn back to your YouTube channel first. When was your, when did you, you post your first video in, in what is now the, the Nare Soul channel? I believe it was summer of 2017. And when you did it, was it, I'm starting a channel or I have a, a, a video that I think is kind of fun and I, I think I'll just put it up there. The latter. Ah. It, it was a mixture of having enough time to actually put together a video. And yep. I, I definitely don't take that for granted. And I, I recognize that at that period, I had time and, right. and I had access to a beautiful piano. I was really excited about my new dog. I adopted a dog recently at that time. And any dog owners will know that. Is that soon, Bobby? Yes, Bobby. Bobby. Um, Bobby. You know, I couldn't take enough pictures and videos of him. And of course, he was always... <laughs> so cute next to me on my lap while practicing. And I wanted to capture a lot of this. And it was also the first summer I was without a piano teacher. And uh -huh. I was completely left to my own device to practice what I wanted, spend my hours at the piano in whatever fashion I wanted. And I was aware that I was doing things that was highly unstructured. And just to give mm -hmm. a little bit of a framework, I decided that I would sort of self-monitor by filming certain parts of, of my work. And I love handling cameras. I have uh -huh. a little bit of a background working also as a freelance photographer prior to that, that year. And I'm just very interested in visual arts. So to me, the idea of compiling this footage into something, um, however sloppily done, uh, right. and posting it was something very fun and interesting to me. I, I think after a handful, maybe half a dozen, I started to get a little more creative with how I was filming as well. But I did not post any of those videos thinking, okay, this is now my YouTube channel. <laughs> and there was not that much of a culture of having uh, a YouTube channel as a budding musician as much, especially mm -hmm. in, in my circle. I may not be aware of certain certain musicians that were already doing this as a you know YouTube channel and I'm I'm right. a classical musician, but I was certainly an anomaly against uh, amongst my friends. But it was most importantly just fun. And how quickly did you start to see that people were were glomming onto this and, and starting to follow your work? It was not very quick at all. In fact there was not much of a change for months. Basically, the, whoever was watching was the people that I was friends with from school and my family. And there's one video that got a lot of attention on Facebook during that time. Ah, which and one was that? It was um, improvising in the styles of different classical composers over Mary Had a Little Lamb. And ah. I 
was definitely not a, a seasoned or experienced improviser in, in that realm. And, and still to this day, uh, what I meant to do basically was just to poke fun and, and just have a little bit of a, in a joking way, right. <laughs> a, a video where I try to emulate the, the essence of a, a composer style in bits, in little fragments with Mary Had a Little Lamb. Right. Um, almost just making fun of them <laughs> just for right. a laugh. And that um, got many views all of a sudden. And from there, I think a little bit of my online presence started to form. And I started to get a lot of you know, attention and, and messages from different creators that were already doing YouTuber. And that's when I met a lot of um, friends that are I'm still close with today who mm -hmm. encouraged me to post these videos more on YouTube than on Facebook. Because at the time right. I would, it was sort of inconsistent as well. I would post most things on Facebook, but also occasionally on YouTube. And, and so I started to then shift over to YouTube and, and post more on there. Interesting. And, mm -hmm. and uh, just to give people an idea of how things have progressed in I guess is now four and a half years or so. Um, you have how many subscribers? I have 450,000. That's pretty amazing. And the total number of views, roughly speaking? That I don't know, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, I've seen 22 millions. I don't know. Uh, I have maybe close to 200 videos now. I don't keep track of the specific numbers, but, but it's also been many years. <laughs> It's been many years, but you've built a real audience now. And what I love about the channel and what really has kind of hooked me on it is that you deal with such a wide range of musical subjects and that you don't really compromise. I mean, you will go into the, into the weeds and the depths, but in a very, very concise way. Some of your videos seem pitched to professionals and serious music students, but it, it never feels like inside baseball. You know, it's, it's always fun and very accessible. You know, there are musical adventures that anyone can enjoy, like your exploration of how, you know, the classics sound on a toy piano. I thought that was, that was really brilliant. You still have the toy piano? I do. Was that a major investment? That that, that was. I, I felt a little bit of sweat when I bought it because I, I had no business buying a toy piano when I did, and I didn't need one. And I just fell in love with this toy piano. And uh -huh. uh, I just, it, it was honestly uh, a very spontaneous purchase. And I got it and I had it shipped over to me. And I was I was most interested in, in that, the quarter inch jack where yes. that allows you to record it directly and, and i've never seen something like that before they have that in a toy piano in the one that i bought and that's the reason i got it because the thing about amazing yeah the thing about toy pianos is that they're they're so quirky yeah and that's part of their charm but it's hard to capture all of the the small details in, in the sound that it's producing because there are mechanical things that are happening because a lot of these instruments, they're just odd <laughs> the way that yes, you have yes, to play yes, them, yes. the key, the mechanism. And so a lot of that sound 
which is also characteristically part of um, the toy piano sound, but it overpowers the actual pitches and what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when I hear recordings of toy piano, the the touch and the the clacking of the keys and the actual instrument, the sound is too uh, overpowering. Right, right, right. And I I really always want to. Uh, I wish that I can listen to uh, what's happening inside as well, and that balance. Is just so hard to to find because you you also don't want it so that you don't hear the instrument because then that right. sounds fake. But the fact that I can just plug into the instrument, I can hear the little details, and I just I just liked it. I guess it would be a little silly to get into the kind of conversations you have about grown up pianos. Like, is the action fast or is it slow? <laughs> yeah. Is it you know, does it yeah. need to be regulated? Yeah, you know, yeah, should we get it? Shall we get a technician in to, to give it a going over? Maybe do a little right. voicing? It's very liberating because on that toy piano, um, there are, I think, I mean, most of the, the keys are already out of tune characteristically. But, <laughs> um, right. but there are two on the top end that a lot of people also commented about that are just really off. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's liberating because you just accept it. You just know this is the instrument and you embrace it. And when you play it and record it, that's just characteristically a part of this instrument. And so I like that. And I like playing, yeah. playing with how, um, even when I was recording that video, there, there are certain things that I just couldn't get the, the keys to do. And sometimes I would play it exactly the way that I played it and it would sound and I would redo it in that same way. And it would sound a different way because of some repetitive function or whatever was happening inside. You you really have to just be gentle with it and accept its weirdness. Well, friends, you've just learned more about the toy piano than probably you ever thought you would ever have the chance to or would ever want to. Uh, So (laughs) there we go. Don't don't tell that to John Cage fans. (laughs) No, 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 absolutely not. And by the way, it's, a really, really great video. So I highly recommend it because you also rate how some of the major (laughs) classics fare on the toy piano. Like, do they sound really convincing? And you had a kind of a meter that you developed for that. It's, it's Mm -hmm. really great. You also uh, did a video where you created classical accompaniments to a Billie Eilish song. Yes. Um, Have you heard anything from Billie about how she liked the accompaniments? (laughs) No, no, no. But I did do that video and the way that I come up with these, ideas and mixture of ideas. Not only is it, I'm going to make a video using the toy piano, or I'm going to make a video about Billie Eilish's music. I like to combine different things that I'm curious about at any given time. And the way I land on the final version of the video is sometimes very chaotic. And it, it's, it's a direct representation of the thought process that I have while listening to something or writing music. And one thing leads to another little question, which leads to another, you know, aha moment, which then sparks many different further questions. And and so, for example, you know, why I chose to do famous melodies and then rate them to me at that time, combining those elements was more interesting and and to me just fun than to sit down and listen to those famous pieces in the original form and recordings of them and rating them. So I just have a lot of fun with, with concepts like that. 
one of the most interesting series, you have a, a number of what I'd call subset series on your channel, are the How to Sound Like Various Composers uh, ones. And you've done Beethoven and Chopin. Your Satie is my favorite because I love Satie. And it really is a great way to approach an understanding of musical style. Most of us, I think, kind of experience music fairly casually. So we have a, 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 an emotional reaction. Most of us, I think, are focused on the melody, even though the melody without its harmonic surroundings and structure is usually pretty uh, empty. And this is really a chance to look under the hood and show the genius ways that, that these composers found of using the elements of musical structure and language to create ultimately an emotional effect. It's a, it's a way to, to look under the hood, so to speak, and see what's going on and why it's affecting you the way it is. Um, did a lot of that stem directly from your original training, or is it something that you've pulled together from your own explorations of the composers and your own sort of getting deeper and deeper into, into how they did what they did? Definitely the latter. I do remember many moments during piano lessons and in school where the topic of a composer's style or something that's recurring in their compositions, when that came up, I would kind of perk up and, and be curious and just think, just wonder, yes, that's right. You know, I always hear Rachmaninoff doing that, but what is it? I never leaned into this, nor was it an area of focus in, in my training. I, in general, really love learning about the behind the scenes and the inner workings of how something is made, whether it's a piece of technology or bread. You know, I like going to <laughs> certain restaurants and, and bakeries where they show you, they have the open window, they show right, right, how, right. how the bread is being made, prepared in the back and the machinery. And I just appreciate what I'm experiencing as a final product, as a final experience, a lot more when I know what's what goes on in the background in order to make that. And I am very, very aware <laughs> of the limitations of trying to fit in uh, describing a composer's style and the history of everything in, what, 7 to 15 minutes? Right, right, right. How ridiculous that is. And how pretentious can you be to say, okay, I'm going to teach you all today how to sound like J.S. Bach. But that limitation aside and just leaning into the absurdity of it, it allows us to just play in this little sandbox and say, okay, I'm going to break apart this music and show you what I think are some important elements of this music. And then we're going to build it back up and we're just going to imagine how a composer would have done it back in his day. Exactly. And by the way, if they were around, they'd probably be really mad because, you know, of the course. magician never reveals their, their, their tricks, right? But not but only I would they be mad, they would, they would just laugh and say, what yeah. are you doing? This is, you are so <laughs> well, off. First of all, it's rewarding to, to watch them a couple of times because things go by pretty quickly, you know, especially the little graphics like <laughs> plagal movement in the Satie, for example. Two seconds. Yes, exactly right. But the other thing is it really conveys the idea that when you listen to Chopin, Chopin 
his music makes you feel a certain way. Obviously, a wide range of different emotions depending on the piece, but there is a certain signature that everyone can kind of recognize if they've listened to eight or 10 different Chopin pieces that will, you know, when they hear the next one, they'll say, oh, that's Chopin. And it's got that that feeling. And it isn't that there's a Chopin kind of tune or melody necessarily, although that could be the case for certain composers. It's everything they do to build up the melody, the development of the melody, the counter melodies, the the use of, mm-hmm. you know, the sonata form, et cetera, et cetera. And being able to understand that it makes you feel that way for a reason, and that's where the art really is. I think that's really, really valuable because it mm-hmm. changes your relationship to music and how you listen to it. It also r- makes the reward of listening carefully, mm-hmm. which is the real beauty and power, which, by the way, goes against the whole streaming Spotify right, approach right. where you just sort of, you know, right. I'm just here as a passive uh-huh. agent, you know, music, just come and get me, do what you will to me. I'm, you know, you're in the background and take me off to dreamland. Well, you know, <laughs> right. this is actually a much more active listener role, which yeah. I think you're really doing a lot to encourage. Thank you. That means a lot to me because I actively seek to try to help people listen to different parts of the music. And in that way, they're really a part of the whole experience more than just observing it. And they're an active part in shaping how how they're experiencing it emotionally. And I've right. seen that sort of transformation happen in different settings, whether it was in front of you know a group of kids that I, I'm showing, doing a little presentation, and they don't seem as interested in settee. They think it's boring, you know, it's uh-huh. so slow and and then I, I started to invite them to pay attention to, isn't that harmonic change there? Doesn't that make you feel a certain way? Or doesn't that make you feel the mystery of something? Or invite them to start imagining different things that require their active participation. And then as they're listening to the same music in different ways while thinking about different ways and being challenged to put different elements of things together in their head, they start to appreciate the music more. And right. in no time, they don't think the music is boring and slow. <laughs> and right. they're, they're, they're interested. And I've seen enough of this in so many different settings that I, I am very convinced that all this music out there is so good. It doesn't need that much help. But just a little right. tiny bit of help goes a long way in just showing people the, the beauty behind it and the depth of emotions behind the music and how it taps into things that maybe we're not even aware of day to day because it's easier and better um, and just more practical not to experience the full range of human emotion every day because then your life would (laughs) become very chaotic very soon. Well, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that in some ways the kind of social order that we live in does discourage us from exploring the, the the depth of our emotions as fully as might have been acceptable earlier. But I also think it's a question of time. People are just driven off their feet, keeping up with everything. And to do the kind of active listening you're talking about means, you know, I mean, for me, it's I get myself alone in a quiet room. The phones will not disturb me. I turn down the lights and I listen in a focused way that basically excludes everything else from my consciousness, which is not something that you can really turn on easily. You actually have to practice 
to get to that point, but it's also the kind of music listening that makes you feel so much better, mm-hmm. so much more, not just refreshed, but almost like all the negativity of a day is purged mm-hmm. out of your system when you, when you can do that. That's very interesting to me to, to hear about your listening setup. Is that something that you landed upon consciously or just over time you, you realize that you like turning off the lights and you like it's listening in a certain way? It goes back to when I was in high school and I would actually, I, I, I've always had a very odd relationship with sleep. I regard sleep as a kind of a, a, a necessary evil that, that keeps you from doing all the things you want to do with the rest of your time. And there used to be a classical music program on the radio in Toronto that started at two in the morning. So I would listen to it for about an hour between two and three with headphones. And I found that even if I fell asleep, the moments leading up to falling asleep, it was a very powerful and intimate relationship with the music. And there was nothing else to distract me because it was two or two thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could basically not be thinking about, you know, how you were feeling physically because you were basically able to create a, a sonic environment that, a, that eliminated everything else. Wow. I, I think that's incredible that you not only recognize that, but you found a way to recreate that and mm-hmm. be a part of your lifestyle now. It's not very common to have a very specific setup for listening. I asked you about it because it's it's something that I'm aware of for myself even too, because I used to have different time uh, periods throughout my week where all I'm doing is listening to music and it's usually for a specific purpose. Maybe I'm doing research on something or I'm just really waiting to listen to an album in its entirety in an undistracted way. But more and more as my schedule got busier, I noticed that I'd be listening to music in so many odd places. And it's because nowadays, um, even though the sound quality suffers so much, again, going back to things like Spotify, I'm I'm listening with my earbuds on the go. Um, When I was living in New York, I'd listen to music on the subway until I realized, you know, it's really too loud to listen to music on the subway, even with noise canceling devices. Right. And then uh, when I moved to the West Coast, I realized that I was listening to the music most when I'm driving. And that's a very specific type of environment. Yeah. Even though I, I love it, it there's, there's always this rumbling that <laughs> adds into the music. Absolutely. And, and honestly, the, uh, I'm not suggesting that the kind of very, very intently focused listening that I'm talking about is the only way. Like music can be enjoyed at so many different levels, including the most casual. I've never been one of those people who turns up my nose at dinner music or, you know, even cocktail piano. In fact, there, I don't know whether you, you know this piece, the American composer Michael Doherty. I don't know if you're familiar with his music. He was uh, a student of Ligeti, but his thing is that he uses popular culture element as his main inspiration. Mm -hmm. And when he was studying uh, with Ligeti, he basically paid his way by being a cocktail pianist. And he created this piece called Lounge Lizards, which is (laughs) basically about, you know, being a pianist in a cocktail lounge. And it's, 
hilariously funny. There's music for all those kinds of contexts. But, you know, I mean, honestly, please do not try the kind of listening that I'm talking about while driving because you'll definitely no, have an accident. No, 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 I just think that there, there's tremendous value in curating a space to listen to music. It's worth doing. It requires a commitment. But mm -hmm. for example, I mean, and anyone who has lost track, especially if you can get to a place with a good sound system. I don't want to make it sound like you have to have a lot of expensive equipment, but one mm -hmm. of the reasons that in the past, lots and lots of kids, their first major purchase, even before they bought their car, was mm -hmm. to buy a good sound system or mm -hmm. a pretty good sound system, what they could afford to buy from their summer jobs. And, mm -hmm. you know, they would dro drop 500 or 750 or $1,000, get a decent pair of speakers, a nice turntable, and what they used to call a receiver, which was an amplifier, preamplifier, and, and radio tuner in one unit. And that would, first of all, give you a realistic enough sonic experience that you could begin to get a little closer to the music. When I had my record label, my partner was a brilliant sound engineer and our goal was to make the best sounding records in the world whether we succeeded or not is a matter of opinion but we certainly worked very hard at it because we wanted it to have that kind of immersive impact for people but it it requires a commitment it to does. your listening with music to basically say you know this is my time and even if it's the same piece of music and you listen to it 10 times in a row you'll hear something different you'll begin okay. to hear the different parts you'll be able to isolate out what's going on at this moment what happened in the harmony just there what how did the instrumentation change from that place to that what was the key change that and why did it work so well with the, the song lyric or if it's as in a lot of classical music, purely instrumental, why did that final chord change? Even though, you know, we're in the recapitulation where everything is repeating, it's repeating in a different key and it feels different. And mm -hmm. so when it comes to an end, it really feels like it's come to an end. How, right. did, how did that happen? So I think that's, that's very powerful. And I think, again, what you're doing in your videos really helps encourage people in that direction. Thank you. So you become... I think, a tremendous ambassador for, well, not just classical music, because classical music also has this negative reputation for being very snooty about other kinds of music. Like nothing else is good beside this, you know, and everything else is trivial or junk or whatever. But you really have approached many other kinds of music in a very, very respectful way to kind of understand what the internal dynamics of, let's say, well, Flamenco is one that I, I really enjoyed, but, you know, I think you've done a hip hop one as well. And, you know, I think that's also very interesting because it, it helps bring the universe of music together under a kind of a common umbrella. We're all, we're all in music. Yes, absolutely. And I appreciate that comment. If you examine very closely and examine enough pieces in classical music repertoire, there are elements of all kinds of music from folk traditions, contemporary music, just so many genres that maybe the average stereotypically snooty classical musician might say classical music is so much better and refined. But there are elements and hints of this music embedded into the music that they're playing because right. the composers were maybe like me in some way inspired by elements of these cultures. And so it's underneath everything, the mixture of cultures and genres and threads of traditions and music is all there. And I think throughout decades and hundreds of years, actually, a certain tradition 
formed that separates classical musician and what's defined as classical musician from other popular genres. And right. I think it's important to just break free from that. And why I do it is because I'm just genuinely curious about how music works in, in other groups and cultures. And whenever I come across a piece or a track or musicians that, that I like, and I'm curious about how, what rhythm are they playing and how, do, how come it sounds this way? I can't really put my finger on what it is, but I, I recognize it. How can I do something similar to that? And then um, just because I do this now, I make a video about it. So friends, we now come to the end of part one of our conversation with Nare Sol. I really enjoyed talking with her about her invention of herself as a classical musician, but also her reinvention of herself as a YouTube phenom. And uh, Rudrapia, I have to say that I really found her her positive can-do spirit tremendously energizing and very encouraging at a time when so many people are, are really struggling to uh, find career opportunities in traditional uh, environments. How about you? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. I found that her creativity, you know, extends so much further than just music and composition. She's really changing the game. Absolutely. Well, we are going to continue our conversation with part two. But in the meantime, uh, Rudrapea, would you care to share some information with our friends? Of course. The Glenn Gould Foundation is a registered Canadian charity, and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to continue bringing inspiring stories to life. Please consider giving by visiting our website, glenngould.ca. And if you're interested in keeping up with the Gould Standard podcast and more work from the foundation, be sure to follow us across social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Glenn Gould Foundation. Thank you so much, friends, and we'll see you for part two. Please be with us then.